0: It's December 2nd, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first
1: bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozal. We're going to kick off the show with a couple of news guests. Samantha Kimsey will tell us about the opening of a Computational Thinkers and Django for Girls event. Then Mellie James is here once again to tell
0: us about what's on tap for the next HVCA Luncheon Panel. And finally, after the break, we'll spend the rest of the hour talking with Pete McGinnis Mark about an update on recent planetary exploration.
1: How active are Hawaii researchers in exploring our solar system? You can get your questions answered as well by calling or sending us a tweet after the break. But to start things off, I believe our featured story today, continuing the geek beat, is the news that toy maker VTech suffered a data breach last month, only recently coming to light. VTech is a billion-dollar Hong Kong-based company and pretty much made
0: all of those toy computers that you get in the toy stores. Now, when you were talking about this story, um, what is surprising to me is that you said that you've actually bought some VTech toys. And I don't know if it was for yourself or for your kids. (laughs) It's for my kids. So the the capability of the VTech toy is basically it's a a Wi-Fi network-enabled toy.
1: Yes. Now, of course, some of them are, not all of them. Mm -hmm. But, of course, they moved into the connected toy space. Like, now you can give your kid a toy smartphone or a toy laptop, Mm -hmm. and you can send little messages to your children, send pictures and voice messages. Well, unfortunately, it's that database that was breached. So, for example, they have... Uh, accounts, uh, email including mailing address, uh, genders, and ages of 6 million kids and 4.8 million adults. These accounts were compromised. There's also reports not yet confirmed that it includes chat logs between parents and kids. It includes photos exchange and audio messages as well. So one of the issues is, is, of course, these toys are affordable. You know, you can get a nice $30 toy laptop rather than a $300 real one. But unfortunately, security is usually not the highest priority for these manufacturers.
0: You know, and I was reading a Fortune uh, uh, article about it, and there's a uh, some kind of like a tablet that they have called uh, Innotab, and there was some obvious uh, um, failures or weaknesses in their security that was known for a couple of mm-hmm. years, and they never fixed it. And it's becoming, well, I think it's be they're trying to investigate whether or not. The VTech people even have a security team right. on staff. They refuse to comment on the size of their security team.
1: And here's the issue. I mean, it's not their forte. They're, the the manufacturing process is long. Mm-hmm. I mean, things that are showing up on toy shelves today probably were made two years ago. And who knows if that ever gets cleared through, let alone updates to the software. We've heard about hacks of cars again, embedded systems, not their forte. And in the news very frequently now, even connected Barbie dolls can be hacked to say things that Barbie probably wouldn't say. People are hacking baby monitors to send scary messages to parents next door. So when we're talking about the Internet of Things and we're talking about these embedded devices, unfortunately security is not something that is very strong. One of the pieces of advice that was given out, and I think also by Fortune, is that if you want to give your kid a tech toy, you should give them something like a used iPhone because at least there there are very robust parental controls and there are security (laughs) mechanisms in place to prevent messaging and things to be had.
0: So do you have any recommendations to any parents who have bought VTech toys for their kids and what they should do now?
1: Well, if you have VTech toys, they've taken all the websites offline so they don't connect, they don't send messages so I suppose that's one solution okay. but certainly you should only be looking at ones that don't connect to networks for the time being. Mm-hmm.
0: Sounds good. Okay, good good advice. And now we have uh, Samantha Kimsey here from Computational Thinkers and she's here to tell us about an open house with uh, computational thinkers and Django Girls, welcome to the show, Samantha.
2: Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Now, first off, tell us a little bit about uh, computational thinkers. This is a relatively new nonprofit that uh, came onto our radar, and, and so maybe give us a little background.
2: Well, just the idea of computational thinking is still fairly new. It hasn't settled into all the schools across the nation, much less the world. So. What we did was instead of trying to fight the battle of getting computational thinking into all the schools, we decided that we would just fight our own battle in the, the public sector. So I had a daughter at the time. She was uh, four, mm-hmm. well, three and a half. And it's about that time that you start looking for schools for your kids. So I thought, okay, well, as a computer scientist, my husband is also a computer scientist, we've gotta find a place that allows us to, uh, allows our child to have the kind of education that we want. Like, what is binary? What is the fundamental uh, concepts that we want our children to understand in the computing world? And so I went to a couple of schools and I asked them, you know, tell me about your computing program. Oh, well, we really don't have a lab or computers or anything. I'm like, oh, that's kind of strange. Okay, next school and and I searched a few different schools. Granted, I'm looking for preschool and, and uh, kindergarten age <laughs> education, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> right. So people like that's unheard of. Why would we do that? They can't even write or read, right? Mm. So then um, I thought, well, I'm, I'll just go to like a outside uh, facility and see if I can find some third party that does this. Nope, no luck. So I was like, all right, fine. I guess I'll have to do it myself. Yeah. So I just brought my daughter into my house, and we established a time that we're going to be doing computational thinking from this time each day. And then it happened that our neighbors came over, and they saw that we were doing this, and they thought we were playing games. So they're like, oh, can I play? Mm-hmm, <laughs> so we played mm-hmm. for a while, and, and then the parents were like, oh, can you teach my kids? So then uh, after having a few kids, uh, someone suggested that, you know, you could do this at a school, like oh really so I went to Wiley Charter Elementary School and I asked their principal would you allow me to rent a space and let me teach kids um, computational thinking they're like well you know we've been wanting to do something like this for a while so sure so I rented the space and I had three students Woo-hoo! <laughs> a whopping three and it went from three to ten and now we have about sixty five students wow and, and
0: when was this uh, first idea proposed
2: we started in twenty thirteen and. Um, At the time, it was just the the Wailai Charter Elementary, and then now we're teaching at Kahala Elementary, and we've had people requesting for their preschoolers to take the classes and also homeschool community and weekend classes, and we couldn't necessarily do that at a school, so we needed to have a facility. Mm -hmm. So we worked with Kamehameha Schools, and we have a facility across from Kahala Mall. It's um, right uh, 4224 Wailai Avenue. And this coming uh, Friday, December the 11th, we'll have our grand opening, and we're expecting a few dignitaries to come and speak. We'll have a kahu who will do a blessing of our space, as well as um, we're requesting that the uh, Governor Ige CIO be there to speak. We're still waiting to see if his schedule will line up. But guests will be arriving around 4 o'clock and uh, for 45 minutes we'll chat and give everyone a welcome and explain a little bit about our facility. And then by 5.15 we'll start an hour of code. And that's where we'd like to have everyone come over and try to do a little bit of coding for an hour. Mm -hmm. All right. so we're
1: talking to you, first of all, Todd Nakapoy. You better show up. Yes, Todd. (laughs) Apart from that, so when you talk about computational thinking you're talking about programming and code. uh, We have a very geeky audience, so the first question would be what languages are you working with these young kids?
2: That's a very good question. A lot of people ask that. Well, I'll start from the highest level and come down. So our fourth and fifth graders right now, they're actually um, doing C Sharp because they're starting to do Unity game development. So we have a game engine and we're working with Unity and they have a a program that helps us build a curriculum that matches more of a a structure for that age group. So they've been very helpful. Uh, We work our way down and our uh, second and third graders are doing more Python because it is an easy language, but our fourth and fifth graders also do Java. So it's a good stepping stone. (laughs) Um, our preschoolers, we use Blockly, of course. Blockly is uh, created by MIT, and that's a good language because they're, they're still not readers. They're still learning how to read and write, So, but they can still think computationally. They can think procedurally. So we get them in to understand, like, what are algorithms? What does it mean to decompose problems? What, how do we analyze a problem and r- an abstract parts of a problem that we don't need. So they can understand those concepts even before they can read or write. So there's no reason to wait until you're in fifth and sixth grade to start writing code. You can start as as soon as... Uh, three and a half, four years old.
0: So are you uh, still taking the program to the schools or are you going to refocus that back into your actual new grand opening space that you have?
2: That's a good question because um, we we are wanting to keep going to the schools because there's a lot of parents that can't go to the school and pick up their kids at 2.30 and take them over to our center. So we'd like to cater to those parents who are workers and can't leave Leave uh, leave work. So we still go there, and we work out our schedule. That some days we teach at schools, other days at the center, and of course weekends and evenings. We offer places for parents to bring their kids in the evenings between five thirty and nine thirty, so they can go out and have dinner and a movie, and let their kids come by and yeah, do some call education. All the right, right there. Exactly. Well, I was perfect. kind of curious.
0: How do you how do you scale? I mean, there's there's one of you, how, and you know there might be multiple schools and your your new center. I mean, how do you multiply or replicate yourself?
2: That's a really another good question. So uh, here with us today is one of our computational artist instructor. Her name is Rosie Breslin and she is also a, a teacher. So um, I teach the core computational thinking concepts and we have other instructors that teach computational electronics, uh, e-wearables, computational chemistry, computational music. So they've taken our concepts and, and they're expanding it out to other instructors.
1: All right. So the graduating of this space is this uh, Friday, Yes. And, uh, but we did also read that uh, Computational Thinkers is working or partnering on another event specific to Django, which is kind of a programming framework. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll make that quick. So we just wanted to let everybody know that the day after our grand opening, so that's December the 12th, we'll be hosting our first annual Django's event. Um, and Django is an international uh, uh, organization which encourages women to learn how to program. And they come in at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they stay there till 6 o'clock in the evening, and they work their little, little tails off learning how to program, and by the time they leave, they have a fully functional website that they feel that they can maintain and grow. And this is for women of all ages, and that's that uh, Saturday, December the twelfth.
1: And you've been working with the other local groups that are kind of focused in the same space.
2: Yeah, thank you. So we're collaborating with uh, Pi Hawaii, which is a local Python user yes. group, and they are working with us to help teach because the program is like a three on three to one ratio of one instructor to three students, so you get a more um, instructor like. Vibe rather than it being a conference, mm-hmm. so you really get to sit down and, and learn at your own pace rather okay. than feeling pressured. Good.
0: So uh, <clears throat> we'll post the uh, link to the uh, your open house on the website tonight. And again, it's on on the 11th, right? And
1: so, what is uh, where can someone go if they wanted to find more information? I presume computational. Thinkers Thinkers. is a relatively widely used phrase, so how do they find you?
2: Thank you. That's uh, computationalthinkers.com is our website. Excellent. Yeah, very simple. (laughs) Uh, And uh, you can go on there and you can see our events and click on a link and be able to sign up for our grand opening as well as more information about our Django event. Unfortunately, it is booked and solid, Uh, or booked up already for this year, but maybe next year you might. Uh, be able to sign up in time but
1: they can find more information about the school
2: yeah we'd Fantastic. love for you to sign up and take classes because if people don't take classes we can't stay in working order so please sign up okay
0: Got it. thanks a lot Thank thanks thanks Samantha. Samantha and next up is Melly James and she is from a variety of places one of which is the Hawaii Venture Capital Association and she's here to tell us about the December luncheon
3: panel welcome to the show Melly. Thanks, Bert. Thanks, Ryan. Now, before we
1: get to the uh, panel, which is always interesting and it's always this this jam packed group of of specialists, we just uh, I just saw Melly last night at 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 the last event she was here to tell us about, which was a dual pitch event for uh, Sultan Ventures hosting an Innovate Her Small Business Administration pitch off and uh, Blue Startups working with the uh, mobile. App Challenge, MCAP, and it was a jam packed event over at the YWCA, but you did in fact have judges and you did in fact select winners. Can you share really how that event turned out?
3: Yeah, the event was amazing and we had over 200 people in attendance, which was jam packed for the YWCA Fuller Hall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We had 14 startups pitching and uh, the winners, we had two audience winners. So for Innovate Her, the audience winner was Ho'olu Pacific. That's right. And for MCAP, was I think it was fresher. Fresher, yes. Yeah. And the we have two winners actually for Innovate Her because um the Mink Center for Business and Leadership is one of the hosts as well as Sultan Ventures, of course. Mm-hmm. And so the two winners are Jet Set ESL, which is an Accelerate UH which company we had on the show. Yeah,
0: uh-huh. Bianca, yeah. she's fantastic.
3: Yeah. And uh, the other one is uh, Edgy Tunes, mm. which was one of the which winners we'll of Startup Weekend. Yeah, we'll oh. hear
0: about that next week. Great. This yeah. is great. This so is Edgy Tunes was on as a pitch. Yes. And then also Clima was on too, right?
1: Clima app was yep. one of the on stage. So we'll hear more from them uh, next week. But again, a great event. Congratulations for Honolulu New Tech as sort of the nexus for bringing together these two national international competitions. I just thought it was a good time. And people really should be paying attention to these activities happening.
3: Yeah, very good. It's a great showcase of things happening in Startup Paradise. Oh, thanks for joining us. No, no. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Were not you here for something else? The oh yeah, Central Hawaii Venture Capital, Capital Association. Association
0: December lunch. Yes. So yeah. tell us what's on uh, what's on tap for that.
3: So we're shaking things up a little. We normally have our HVCA luncheons on Thursday, and this one is our combo November December event because you know the last Thursday in November and the last Thursday in December is. Kind of a little busy with uh-huh. Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we're having our luncheon on Monday, this coming Monday on December 7th. And the topic is medical marijuana. Is this a high-growth opportunity?
0: That's a great question. Do you have an answer for that? Obviously, if the Hawaii Venture Capital Association is wanting to explore, explore this and have the experts from you know uh, featured at this panel, there must f- be a business opportunity here.
3: Well, that's what we're there to find out. So it's definitely you know a question mark because we're looking at this from a macro level. Mm-hmm. So no one on the panel is a potential applicant for a dispensary. Mm. We're really looking at this from a policy standpoint, legal standpoint. Uh, the, our panelists, uh, Representative Della Albalati, mm. who's the head of the House Health Committee, she and Senator Willis Sparrow were two very integral people with the writing of the bill, um, which was signed by David Ige, um, I believe— a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two on the panel are going to be a really, really great in terms of looking at, you know, how, what was the legislative history and the process it took to get the law passed? Um, why is right now the right timing? What can we learn from other states and and what has happened with other states in the past? Um, and what is the business opportunity? Um, in terms of our other panelists, we have Pamela Lichty, who is the president for the Drug Policy Forum of Hawaii, and she's been incredibly involved in this for the past, I'd say, I'm not going to date her, but over <laughs> over 20 years. <laughs> so um, even from when you know the the law was initially passed 15 years ago with medical marijuana being legalized, um, not with a dispensary but more with personal growth. Um, so she's just she's like a huge huge amount of uh, information resource. The final panelist is Anita Hofschneider, who's a reporter with the Honolulu Civil Beat. And she's been following and covering everything going on with medical marijuana for the over the past two years. So a really, really uh, interesting perspective uh, more on the media side. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, so one of the failings uh, from, I guess, the previous law, which this helped uh, alleviate, was the fact that there were no dispensaries and now having dispensaries is, is, uh, is legal. What does that open up from a business standpoint? Will that also, I guess— uh, Talk about uh, the possibility of growers and growing and and, then supplying those dispensaries.
3: Yeah, so there are, I believe, eight companies that are able to open two dispensaries in next year, I believe in April. Um, And so that that does kind of open up to a whole slew of business opportunities and whether there's also complimentary services that have nothing to do with the actual growing and selling of marijuana. Mm -hmm. So that's really about the conversation we're looking at here. What are these opportunities um, and being able to, to create uh the supply that that obviously hasn't you know, there's a much higher demand um, in the past.
1: Well, I like the idea of the bigger picture. I mean, certainly the competition for those eight uh, licenses is going to be very fierce. Um, I think that there are a number of players in the community that are interested in putting their names in the hat, and that process itself is going to is is challenging and for some people controversial. But I agree that there's, a, there's also sort of the satellite things. I'm thinking who's going to make the dispensary map app? Who's mm-hmm. going to be des- d- designing or knitting uh, containers uh, out of yarn? I mean, it, it could go... Uh, pretty much anywhere, so do you know um for for example, for Senator uh, Willow Sparrow and for Adela Albaladi, they are they've done a lot of the groundwork in terms of seeing what other states have done and what has perhaps worked and what hasn't worked
3: though. yeah, and that's actually been um, uh, integrated into the law that w- in the bill that was passed mm-hmm. and being able to learn from other states that have come before us, you know looking at Colorado, Oregon just got theirs passed mm-hmm. um but, you know, looking also at amendments and how many amendments to the, to the bill are they looking at, um, are they looking at being able to have ailments such as anxiety and insomnia, um, inner island, uh, you know, being able to move the, the product inner island. Uh, I think in, in Oregon, they now are able to have in-state flights where you are able to transport ah, I see, I see. product. Uh, but, it, it, you know, there's a whole other slew of, of laws with, with federal federal law. So.
0: so with the eight dispensaries, are they distributed across the islands? Yes, two on Oahu, uh-huh. yeah. And then does the dispensary also tell you how many farms there might be or, or you know, agricultural con- uh, source material coming into the dispensaries? How does that get handled by the law?
3: Those are really good questions, Bert. Okay, so maybe I should go to the panel (laughs) and and ask the panel... Because yeah. the
0: dispensary, of course, is different from the farm, right? Yes. So, yeah.
1: okay. And certainly, I can see the policy questions as well. And even though the, the bill was a long time in coming, people were, were there were some challenges. For example, with legal representation and how that worked in the bill. Mm-hmm. And so I can see they will discuss ways that they could make the law better. But yes, all of those questions shall be answered by this esteemed panel on Monday. Uh, one more time, where and when it's happening, and how can someone attend?
3: Well, just before I answer that, we will, <laughs> we may have a fifth panelist, which ah. I'll be able to announce this week. Okay. And it'll oh, be you a mean, very oh, interesting. So You can't announce it here. I cannot announce it here until I get the word. Okay. But um, this fifth panelist will be very, potentially very, very interesting. So I definitely highly suggest people get their tickets now and attend. Um, We've had a ton of interest. I can't tell you how many tickets definitely have already been secured. So once we hit that number, we will be sold out. So I suggest getting your tickets now. But that event will be on Monday, Mm -hmm. December 7th, this coming Monday at the Plaza Club, 1130 to 130. And you can get tickets at hvca.org.
0: Very good. Thanks, Billy, for
3: joining us. Thanks, Bert. Thanks, Ryan. Always Always a pleasure. Yes.
0: And, of course, uh, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by... Pete mcginnis Mark, and we'll talk about recent discoveries in planetary exploration.
1: What's new with Pluto? Comet 67P, what's going on with Mars? Of course, we'd love your questions as well. As part of that conversation, you can give us a call at 941 3689, or you can reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, if not from other planets, at 877 941 3689.
0: I'm calling in from Pluto. <laughs> and of course, you can tweet to us that uh, you can send us your tweets at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe.
2: Hi, my name's Bonnie Rice. I'm a principal at the Rice Partnership Wealth Management, and we're an underwriter of Hawaii Public Radio. People in the community definitely comment that they hear that we're supporting public radio, and we think public radio ranks right up there as another important way we can bring something of value to the communities we serve. Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership, building community.
1: Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Kirk Schneider, author of Awakening to Awe, Personal Stories of Profound Transformation. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a new dimension that can radically transform your life.
4: Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks
1: Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative.
0: Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today... Pete McGinnis-Mark, and of course Pete is a researcher at the Hawaii Institute for Geophysics and Planetology, which is in the School of Ocean, Earth, Science, and Technology, and he's a director of the Pacific Regional Planetary Data Center,
1: And what is the history that allowed Hawaii and SOAS to be a part of some of the most interesting explorations of our solar system? Of course, we'd love your questions as well. You can give us a call at 941 or 877 941 from the
0: neighbor islands. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe, Pete.
4: Thank you very much, Ryan. Hi, Bert.
0: So, Pete, uh, you know, we would like to get a little bit of history because, you know, Hawaii being in the middle of the Pacific and uh we well I mean we've obviously kept track of some of the stories that have been going on with uh you know with um the geophysics and planetology and of course soas and you know the work that's been going on but how did how did Hawaii establish itself in the minds of NASA going to all these planets i mean it, it, you would think that you know a lot of universities on the mainland would probably be uh first and foremost in line to Provide them with you know with uh, technology, but how did Hawaii establish itself as a as a resource for technical that technical expertise? That's
4: right, but I mean obviously there are other universities across the U.S. mainland where planetary work is also conducted at the ha- very highest level for NASA. But Hawaii's main claim to fame actually originated in the early seventies because of the Mauna telescopes. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of observational data collected primarily of the Moon, but also of Mars. And after that, there really was quite an interest in trying to do a geological interpretation of some of those data sets. And so trying to make the comparison between geologic processes we thought were operating, say, on the moon or on Mars with what's going on here in Hawaii, particularly with the uh, resurgence of volcanic activity on Pu'u O volcano starting in 83, for example, there was a lot of synergy between what you could see either through the telescope or some of the early space missions and what you could actually observe happening here in hawaii
0: mm. well that that seems a little obvi- obvious now because when you do have all these uh let's say data and and film coming back or pictures coming back from mars i mean it does have a a close right and, and indeed One of the key
4: connections has been the fact that Hawaii is quite similar to much of the geology of Mars, uh, has enabled us to advocate Hawaii as a test site for many of the new types of instruments, which are frequently either taken out into the field or they're flown on aircraft or also on Earth-orbital satellites. So NASA was able to use the expertise here in Hawaii to basically understand how to build the next generation of instruments to get the most geological information out of some of the planetary probes. And of course, there are many other types of measurements which are made on the planets. But Hawaii's uh, excelled really in making the geological analyses and the next generation instruments mm-hmm, which might mm-hmm. actually be relevant for a space probe. Mm-hmm. And we've certainly enjoyed covering some of those stories at least in recent times for example
1: the, the Mars habitat the high seas uh, experiment going on we have the, the lunar concrete in Hilo working with Pisces and the analog there and, and even working with some schools to do things. Um, so you're saying though that this history this expertise that has been um, fostered here in Hawaii goes back at least to the 80s then.
4: Oh. Uh, Probably the early 70s uh, in terms of the telescopic observations of the moon. And it really sort of uh, went through a resurgence in the early 80s because at that time NASA was interested in flying different types of instruments like an orbital imaging radar system. And Hawaii was one of the main targets around the world. And then that led to, for example, the Magellan mission which flew to Venus Mm. as well as some of the radar systems which have been flown to Saturn and there have been various proposals to fly a radar to Mars, for example. So, understanding the geology of Hawaii, understanding what kinds of measurements you need to make from orbit uh, and the types of instruments that that requires has really sort of picked up a lot of pace. So, not only in terms of our understanding of what is happening on Mars or uh, further out in the solar system, but also what types of measurements you need to make, you know what signal to noise, what data rate do you need, what spatial resolution spectral resolution all those sorts of mm-hmm. issues are easily addressed or more easily addressed when you 're looking at say the big island as opposed to looking at other parts of the of planet earth
0: so when you talk about sp- resolution. Can you actually test some of the theories on, let's say, instrumentation right here on the Big Abs- Island?
4: Absolutely. I mean, uh, one of my colleagues is off to the Big Island uh, this weekend mm-hmm. to test uh, the capability of a thermal infrared camera, which conceptually would be used to detect uh, sulfur dioxide uh, from orbit, um, also a methane detector, which would have direct relevance for Mars. And we probably wouldn't even fly that kind of instrument in Earth orbit for about the next decade. So getting some expertise on how much uh, spectral resolution you need, uh, signal to noise, spatial resolution, and how often you need to come back to the same place to make uh, understandable measurements of, say, gas emission from a volcano or methane release from permafrost and those sorts of things would be very interesting, and that's one of the things which we do here quite often.
1: Now, Pete, before we take off into and explore our solar system, I was I, I wanted to know how you came to choose this as a passion, as an interest. Were you a stargazer as a young child, or did you just stumble into the wrong office at the university?
4: <laughs> oh, oh, pure luck, Brian. I mean, um, I often try and quiz myself on exactly how I was so lucky and blessed to come to Hawaii and get involved in basically uh, the best job I could well imagine. Mm. Uh, My background is actually as a geographer. uh, Geography. Geography, Mm -hmm. and then I started getting into environmental sciences, so hydrology and meteorology and remote sensing. Uh, That was part of my bachelor's degree in England. At the time, and I'm dating myself here, um, as my undergraduate senior project, I worked on analyzing some of the Apollo 15 and 16 ah. images taken from the moon in real time. So we had maps of the moon and we listened to the audio from the astronauts on the surface and we we're trying to figure out where they are. And at that point, I just got hooked. Yeah. And I thought, well, that was fine as an undergraduate. So I went off to be essentially a community college teacher for a year didn't like that (laughs) went back to grad school and again really lucky um, I just basically got involved in a type of project which enabled me not only to look at planets but also go to some cool places on the earth I thought that was it as far as graduate school was concerned and then after emigrating I ended up as a postdoc at Brown University on the east coast Mm -hmm. And again, just dumb luck, Uh, my boss was in charge of the cameras, which were then operating on the surface of Mars with the Viking landing spacecraft. So this is 76 (laughs) to 81. And at that point, his colleagues uh, were working here in Hawaii. So I started coming out. And when they realized I'd done field work on both active volcanoes, as well as uh, looked at some meteorite craters here on the earth, they said, you know. You come on wanna, over. Come on over. Do you want a soft money faculty position? You know, it's up to you to raise your own salary. And I've been here since eighty two. The rest is history. The rest is history. Very impressive. That's great. D- That's dumb great. luck, basically.
0: <laughs> so, have you uh, obviously you've been successful at bringing grad students in, working on projects, having those grad students sort of graduate out and continue to work in this industry.
4: Uh, they have at least left and they have <laughs> at least graduated, whether I'm successful. But no, or, or joking aside, I mean, some of the graduate students which uh, the Institute has had. You know, w- Currently, we have uh, 11 of our faculty who are science team members on planetary missions. But more importantly, some of our graduate students have built cameras which are currently in orbit around Saturn, in orbit around the moon driving across the surface of Mars. Mm -hmm. Um, We're having another graduate student. She's going to build an instrument that will go to Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, in about 2028. Um, Some of the faculty are involved in instrument development programs, which will be part of the Mars 2020 mission, which will uh, hopefully go and look for biomarkers on the Martian surface. So, yes, our our graduate students get... um, top marks for successful careers. Some of them work at the Jet Propulsion Lab or Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, uh, U.S. Geological Survey, Smithsonian Institution. So some of the top-notch government labs as well as educational organizations. So they've they've done quite well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, help me understand the process by which a student might get involved with an instrumentation project, because I would think that you know, let's say they're uh, working on their PhD, but they have maybe three, four years to work on something, and the actual device that goes up on uh, you know, a rocket mission has to get hardened, it has to be pretty much space-ready. Th- um, what is the process by which the... You a, know, an, the
4: an incoming graduate student uh, would find it very hard to actually put their own instrument on board one of the planetary missions. Mm-hmm it's a much more drawn-out process. But uh, from, say, your sophomore year as an undergraduate, uh, you start developing skill sets that um, your potential graduate advisor would find useful, and that might be computer programming, it might be engineering, it might be uh, astrophysics, it might be uh, geology, and a whole variety of other skill sets. So once you've got your bachelor's degree, you then go off and you find uh, a potential graduate advisor who is already involved in either competing for one of these instruments which would fly in a spacecraft, or already has been selected. And realize that, for example, you know some of these planetary missions they take fifteen to twenty years to bring to fruition, mm-hmm. so that you know. As with the, the Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity, which is still working on the Martian surface almost 12 years after it landed, mm-hmm. um, you basically have the opportunity for an undergraduate, if she was just graduating when the opportunity landed, she's going to be up for tenure fairly soon. Right, right. So you have to develop this long term perspective because planetary missions may take 10, 20, even 30 years, mm-hmm. let alone For example, Voyager 1, which is like 42 years and counting. Um, But the real thing a student has to do is to develop a diverse skill set that would be applicable to a certain part of an instrument program, find a graduate program and a thesis advisor who could introduce her or him to um, the, the relevant team members, write a a related thesis and maybe that involves cutting metal or writing code or analyzing existing Mm -hmm. data. And then you progress to be a postdoc somewhere and all the time you're sort of getting more uh, involved in space missions or doing the basic data analysis Mm -hmm, type. mm -hmm. But, you know,
1: Pete, I mean, it just boggles my mind when you talk about sort of the long time periods you're talking about, you know, even when you talked about some of the projects that that our UH graduate students are contributing toward, you know, it's for a rocket that won't even leave until 2020, let alone when it will get there, let alone collect the data. So certainly having that pipeline and having all of that in place is important, but certainly there's a role for institutional knowledge to be retained and to continue and to be available over time. And I know that there is something called the, the Pacific Regional Planetary Data Center. That is correct, And yes. it, 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 that I find fascinating too, that there is a
4: data center for planets at the University of Hawaii. I mean, what is that? Well, that was created in 84 at the time when the, the internet did not exist. Wow. And virtually all of the planetary data were in analog form. So there were photographs like the astronauts took on the moon. There were a whole series of maps. And progressively, NASA has gone into the digital medium, obviously, so that the the planetary data center here in Hawaii is one of nine across the U.S., and there's another four, which are international data centers, which basically try to help the average user gain access, and help interpret some of these data sets. And obviously they are becoming much more complicated and much larger in volume and complexity. So there's still a role for something like planetary data center that we have here at UH Manoa to really help not only the, the the layperson or the teacher but also some of the professional scientists because often it's really hard unless you're on one of the planetary missions themselves to fully understand how to work with let's say you've got three or four data sets an imaging uh, optical camera an imaging radar a laser altimeter a magnetometer whatever, how do you merge those data sets into a coherent story, which is how you support yourself and your graduate students through uh, data analysis research programs. Now, you mentioned,
1: you know, from the days of analog and images that come in binary bits at a time to now, it's one of the challenges that I know exists in research, and certainly as instruments get better, is the volume of data that you're pouring through is exponentially larger than it was in the days of uh, Voyager and photographs. Um, One of the things that we talk a lot about is, for example, uh, maybe crowdsource science or, you know, here's the large data set that people can break up and do things. Is that something that works in planetary solar system research or not so
4: much? Not so much. I mean, basically... If you were in the data interpretation business as a student, as a faculty member or whatever, uh, you basically develop your own corporate memory in terms of recognizing where there might be fundamental new discoveries to be made, whether it's on Pluto or whether it's on Mars. So the crowdsourcing of the data set is really quite difficult. You are correct in saying uh, Ryan, that basically um, you don't have the opportunity to look at all of the data now because there's such a huge volume. You know, A single image is like one and a half gigabits of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to know intuitively where you should start looking to try and get the maximum return for the time investment. Uh, and that's the sort of thing which... If you, as I said, were trying to become a planetary geologist as opposed to an instrument engineer, as opposed to a computer programmer on the space program, it's learning where the interesting problems really are. So you can go to those data sets without spending years trolling through an archive.
0: So I'm wondering uh, if if, um, there's a high school teacher out there that's interested in accessing the database uh, would they just basically go online, <coughs> excuse me, and and get it a- get access online, or do they have to physically contact the, you? The, and, and the
4: whole intent NASA puts virtually all of their data online within a day of their acquisition. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, you can go to Jet Propulsion Lab website and you can look at all of the uh, images from Mars Curiosity and Opportunity rovers, almost. Same day, maybe certainly same week,
0: but, but in reference to the, the, um, the, the uh, data center that you actually manage is is data accessible online at, at your database it 's
4: no different than the general public has access to from their home computer. Hmm. We might have a faster internet connection, <laughs> we might have the relevant computer programs. That lets you do the calibration or the geometric rectification, um, or to do some of the more detailed quantitative analyses. But the basic images are readily available worldwide over the internet.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're talking to uh, Pete McGinnis, Mark, and of course uh, we will continue this conversation and maybe get into some specifics on some of the planets that we mentioned earlier in our uh, in our promo. But we'll be back after this short break to continue our conversation with Pete and, of course, uh, planetary exploration in general.
1: How does UH stay involved and competitive in planetary exploration? And yes, let's hear about some of these specific missions. If you've got a question, you can call 941 3689, or from the neighbor islands, you can reach us at 877 941 3689. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe.
2: Online consignment shop The Real Real hopes to make a real profit. We're sort of taking the bottom off Sotheby's and Christie's and the top off of eBay. And there's billions of dollars of value in that space. I'm Molly Wood. How one company is trying to take the secondhand luxury goods market online.
4: Next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe.
1: On Friday, December 4th, the Pacific Harp Project releases their first CD of jazz, pop, and original music for harp and rhythm section with a concert in the Atherton Studio. To hear the new sounds of the Pacific Harp Project, purchase your tickets at hbrtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during HBR's business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership
4: Wealth Management. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund,
1: which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente.
0: Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum.
1: And I'm Ryan Ozauer. I'm talking to Pete McGuinness
0: mark about exploring our solar system. And, of course, we'll get to the s- the specifics, and if you want to give us a call, that number is nine four one three six eight nine on Oahu, or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine on the Neighbor Islands. Now, Pete, um, you know we were talking about, um, you know, some of the data that's being collected, and 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 a lot of it, uh, you know, you folks are are looking at and, and analyzing, and uh, coming up to with some conclusions. Uh, you know, you mentioned Cassini and the work that's been done to look at images from Saturn? I mean, maybe we can start with that. Sure. What are, what are we, you guys discovering or working on specifically?
4: Uh, this is particularly an instrument which was built by Bob Brown, who was one of our graduate students in the uh, early 1980s. He went off to University of Arizona, but is the principal investigator for the instrument. And VIMS has been fundamentally important for not only studying the planet Saturn and its rings, But from a geologist's point of view, there are a pair of moons around Saturn. One is Titan, which has a very thick methane atmosphere. And a second one is called Enceladus. And Enceladus is proven to be a really fascinating little world, although it's much smaller than our own moon. It's got active water geysers. And so uh, VIMS and some of the other instruments on Cassini has been studying uh, the particles which are being thrown out into space by these water geysers, and w- have inferred that there, for example, is a liquid water ocean uh, just below the surface, probably about three to five kilometres below the surface, and it's heated by geothermal energy, which presumably is coming from tidal interaction between mm-hmm. Saturn and and the moon Titan. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. The, the camera itself lets you infer something about the particle size uh, of the water jets as well as some of their chemistry, and it's working in conjunction with a number of other instruments, including an imaging radar system, which shows us a lot of the surface. And the radar is particularly good uh, for Titan, specifically because it can peer through the thick atmosphere, and we can look at, say, all the liquid methane lakes which are on Titan and try and infer infer the hydrology of these lakes and how old the landscape is. Uh, And in fact, Titan itself has what's called a hydrologic cycle, which is almost identical to Earth's. On Earth, it's water that is the the main uh, liquid that's moving around. Titan is a much colder world at about 120 Kelvin, and so we're looking at methane. So you have liquid methane in the oceans that evaporates to produce clouds, and then you have methane rain, and that sort of comparative planetology is really very interesting. Well, Mm -hmm. one of the things that we talk quite about a lot, to the point of the theme of our show is
1: Exoplanetpalooza, is the search for other planets and and the concern about uh, whether they might be able to support life. But I like what you're talking about, Titan and the moons of Saturn, because even when we are identifying really large exoplanets in other solar systems, it perhaps is in fact the moons of these exoplanets that might be the ideal environment to have water and perhaps support life. I mean, uh, with the additional research that's happening with exoplanets, do you see a direct analog or direct connection between what you're discovering about, say, Titan and tidal forces and perhaps what we might start to presume or suspect or hope for when we find planets in other systems.
4: Yeah, the analysis of exoplanets parallels the kind of geology or understanding of the the objects in our own solar system, particularly, for example, looking at the atmospheres of some exoplanets, um, trying to detect uh, possible variations in the chemistry of the, the exoplanet's atmosphere. If, for example, you saw oxygen or or methane, that's a dead giveaway that there's some biological activity going on. Mm. Uh, There are other parts of an exoplanet's geology that is particularly interesting. You know, like the Earth has plate tectonics. Is that due to the fact that we've got a liquid water ocean and uh, certain temperatures allow the Earth's crust to be recycled? We do not see that on Venus. And so if you're looking at exoplanets trying to infer whether you have uh, ongoing volcanism, whether or not you see chemistry of rocks which imply that the crust has been recycled many times, and the way to do that is probably through plate tectonics that sort of gives you an idea and there 's been various hypotheses that uh, say link the presence of liquid water on earth 's surface to water in the crust and mantle. And that you have hydrothermal activity, which produces the black smokers on the ocean floor, and that could be one of the early habitats for life. So, yeah. trying to understand how many exoplanets may have uh, crustal recycling would be another thing that you would want to do, and you could do that spectroscopically uh, from near Earth orbit, for example.
0: Well, you know, the thing that fascinates me is, you know, with the uh, the, the astronomers studying exoplanets and looking at the spectral signatures of these exoplanets and trying to determine from afar away what they what the atmosphere might look like and then inferring from that signature what might be on that exoplanet to me is how do they Amazing. get all how do they get all Amazing. that information from what you know basically they, they find in a little speck uh, that is and is
4: again it comes down to the quality of the instrumentation. You know, our friends at IFA have been really good. Uh, designing a variety of cameras, and I should point out that not only do they look at exoplanets beyond our solar system, but you know, IFA has been really a leader in identifying uh, near-Earth asteroids, asteroids beyond the asteroid belt itself, Kuiper Belt objects. And so it's the, the technology, it's the instrumentation that has been developed here in Hawaii in many instances, um, it's the same kind of problem that as a geologist looking at the surface of Mars, I want to see objects, say, uh, a meter or so across. Uh, that spatial resolution is very similar to the demands that one would put on an instrument that might be on a space telescope that you're looking at exoplanets or um, stars to see if they have planets around them. So, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You're just looking at different objects.
1: Well, can you tell us about, you mentioned um, asteroids, certainly another thing that um, Hawaii researchers have a level of expertise and understanding of. Is there a particular project or instrumentation for asteroid hunting that, that, that you thought stands out?
4: Uh, as I mentioned, the IFA, right, our right. colleagues there, uh, that they are some of the world leaders in terms of uh, pan-stars, which is basically trying to identify near-Earth asteroids and trying to develop an inventory of Earth-crossing asteroids as well as looking at the chemistry. Various members of my group at Eurich Manoa also are really good at a subject called cosmochemistry, which basically looks at the meteorites and the petrology or the chemistry of the rocks, that fall on Earth as as meteorites. To look back not only at early solar system processes, but also you can find material that comes from uh, other stars, so you're looking for pre-solar grains in meteorites, which we pick up here on the Earth. And so it's really a great synergy. You find that you've got, say, the instrument developers who are either looking at the surface of Mars or exoplanets, They are both providing us information about, uh, say, the building blocks, how uh, a star system might evolve, but also we can look at the chemistry of the the rocks through the telescopic spectra, compare those to meteorites, and we know a lot more about meteorites when they formed, what temperature pressure environments existed, say, in the first 3 million years of solar system history. So it, it works back and forth, and it's all down to not only... Uh, The space instrumentation, but we have like transmission electron microscope. We have uh, ion probes. We have things which can look at the submicron scale uh, for these meteorites. So it's all part of the same general effort.
0: I'm I'm curious with uh, the astronomers that work up at the Institute for Astronomy and the folks looking at the exoplanets, do they ever – cross the street and go visit you at the Institute for Geophysics and the Planetology? R- and the
4: relevant ones, yes, in fact, there is a joint astrobiology institute, right, which, is, which is led that, yeah. by Karen Meech, and uh, she's from the Institute for Astronomy. Many of the my faculty colleagues in Institute of Geophysics and Planetology are part of that Institute, and there there are numerous collaborations particularly focused on, say, water in the solar system, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, life in extreme environments, and that sort of thing. So, yes, they do cross the street, or they (laughs) do take the hike up to Manoa Valley and back. So,
0: So speaking of water, are are you paying a lot of attention to what's being discovered on on like Comet, that 67P? Oh,
4: absolutely fantastic. The mere fact that they found oxygen on the surface is absolutely fundamental because that sets some of the limits on how the processes were operating very early in the solar system's history. We do not yet know if 67P is uh, a comet that came into the inner part of the solar system from way out, way beyond the orbit of Pluto in Mm a place called the Kuiper Belt. But those sort of discoveries as well as just looking at the physical properties of the, the comet nucleus, it, it's complete revelation in terms of uh, what we're learning. And hats off to the European Space Agency that flew the spacecraft called Rosetta, placed it in orbit around the comet, and then managed to put a small lander down. Absolutely phenomenal. Well, you know,
0: wasn't the lander recently uh, sent to the surface of the comet and I think it was like just last month, and it sort of bounced a couple times. And Uh, it was actually it
4: was last year. It was November of last year. Uh, Philae lander, yes. Uh, Again, we're learning a lot about how to actually do space exploration. The Philae lander um, went down to the surface of the comet. It was meant to have uh, some harpoons to keep it in place, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but unfortunately, those harpoons didn't work because the surface of the comet was much tougher than we were expecting, or the Europeans were expecting, and so the lander bounced, it bounced twice, and then it ended up in the shadow of a cliff, and so um, it sort of went to sleep when its batteries ran out, and it only woke up last May, and it was signaled signal back twice since then, because the... Comet was getting much closer to the sun Mm -hmm. and the illumination geometry had changed. But, you know, the main uh, excitement really has come from the orbiter because the orbiter is actually working almost as a sort of a a lander in the sense that it flies through some of the plume material that is coming off of, you know, Bruce Willis. His (laughs) image Mm -hmm. of landing on the nucleus of a comet isn't that far from the truth, it turns out. And so you're getting these great plumes of volatiles coming off of the the comet's surface and Rosetta spacecraft is so close to the surface of the comet that it's actually getting in situ measurements of plume material. So it's phenomenal. I mean, yeah, Maybe
0: what I, what I was looking at was the anniversary report. Possibly. Yes, yeah. it would have been the yeah. anniversary report.
1: But and to think that it was launched in 2004 it took 10 years to make this rendezvous, and they still did this precision operation is very impressive. And,
4: and we mentioned earlier you know, the, the long time frame. It was launched in 2004. The original idea for the funding would probably have been put forward in the late 80s. Wow. So you had the mm-hmm. same group mm-hmm. of individuals proposing the instruments, Accepted, build Building the instruments, yeah. then launch in 2004, and then the encounter was 2014. So you're really looking at 25 years, and of course, the data set is unique. I mean, right now, we have no plans to go back to any of the commentary right.
1: nucleus. Well, uh, Pete, before we run out of time, again, we kind of kind of look forward as well. I mean, what are the future plans? You mentioned Mars 2020, I think. I mean, what are some of the future missions, uh, particularly with UH connections, that you're excited about?
4: Well, certainly Mars 2020 is the most exciting, primarily because three of our faculty are actually involved in that particular mission. We've got Shiv Sharma and Anapan Misra, who helping to build a a standoff Raman spectroscopy, which would basically enable us to use uh, lasers to look for biomarkers on the surface of Mars. So you're looking for uh, potential life in extreme environments on Mars. And Sarah Fagent, she's involved uh with one of our former graduate students, Jim Bell. Uh Jim is building a stereo camera system which provides all these wonderful images just like the the Mars exploration rovers have been doing. So going back to Mars is certainly the top priority for um, my group at UH Manoa, but there are other really exciting missions. We mentioned earlier the the Pluto flyby, you know we're not directly involved in that, but that's gonna be a fascinating project. Um Europa Clipper, which will probably launch in about 2028. Uh, that's going to be real revelation as we fly by the moon of Jupiter called Europa. This is the one from 2001, yes, for exactly. example, with the monolith. Mm-hmm. Uh, another candidate for uh, a, an ocean near the surface. Cassini continues to amaze not only Titan and Enceladus but some of the other moons as well. I mean, there's basically a smallsburg. Pick your part of the solar system that you want to work on it. You All know, of it is fascinating. You,
0: men- you mentioned Pluto. I mean, how quickly or how much data is being transmitted uh, from Pluto? Because the flyby has already taken yeah. place.
4: You're old enough to remember Dalat Modens. Right? Yes. <laughs> there you go. If, <laughs> I do, too, if, I do. If, if you had about... A fifth, the speed of a dial-up modem. That is how rapidly the data are coming back from new horizons. Uh All right, just because it's so far away, it's 39 astronomical units, 39 times the distance Earth is from the sun. Mm -hmm. I should also mention that another of our grad students, Mark Robinson, built the camera, which is in orbit around the moon right now, and Uh we're spending a lot of time looking at lunar geology at a spatial resolution of about... Say half a meter, so that we've got topographic data, we've got thermal data, high-resolution. Some of the
0: Mars imaging is incredible because I look at some of the Mars imaging and it looks like it's right here here, on Earth somewhere. From the
4: surface of uh, Curiosity, which is in Gale Crater, it's unbelievable and it's a really interesting geological locality on Mars. So yes. Uh, a lot of it looks like Kiloware. It looks like your backyard if you've got sort of uh, lava rock there. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the time sequence over which the landscapes on Mars have been built up is radically different. I mean, Gale Crater, where Curiosity is located, uh, is about 3.6 billion years old, and so you've seen geological processes operating on the surface. Uh, when the crater was very young that are completely different from what we're seeing now. So you've got this extended time period that is absent due to erosion here on the Earth. But unlike the moon, for example, or Mercury, uh, because Mars has an atmosphere, because it has water, because um, you've got a continual weathering process, um, it's a very more interesting and complicated place.
1: I have to ask a very quick question as we wrap. Um, when we have a UH researcher working on imagery in orbit around the moon, how many times do people ask him if he can see the landing site
4: from you New know, Quite often, front? and of <laughs> course you can. You can see the footprints on all of the astronauts. You can actually recognize, uh, for example, the Chinese put a lander down about Long. two years ago, and we were able to—not we— Uh, Mark and his group at Arizona State were able to show the Chinese where they landed and and what the the path of the rover was. Um, We can get data that are about 25 centimeters in spatial resolution. So all of the Apollo landing sites, all of the unmanned surveyor and uh, ranger landing sites have all been imaged. Oh, Very great, impressive. Great
0: stuff. Well, Pete McGinnis, Mark, he's a researcher at the Hawaii Institute for Geophysics and Planetology. And I want to thank you for joining uh, us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Pat. Thank and you, Ryan.
1: Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us tonight week when we'll talk about or talk with the latest winners from the latest Startup Weekend Honolulu.
0: And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feedback. At bitemarks.org is the place to send your email. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And, of course, we leave you with a song pick, maybe just a couple seconds of it. It's Django Django and a song called First Light. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.